0: Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace that is new every morning for us. We thank you for your word. You speak to us, Lord. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to you now and open your word to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we uh, begin this week with the 2003 action comedy, Shanghai Nights. (laughs) Shanghai Nights. It's the sequel to Shanghai Noon, uh, but Shanghai Nights, it stars stars Jackie Chan and Owen Wilson, an unlikely duo, but they're amazing together. Uh, It's one of my favorite comedies from the early 2000s. So it, it combines the Wild West with the Far East and Great Britain, which is a very hard thing to do, but they do it. And so it's your homework. Go home this week and watch Shanghai Nights. Um, The scene that best fits our purposes today are when Owen Wilson's character, uh, Roy, is in great trouble. And he is hanging from the clock hands of Big Ben. Okay? You have to watch the movie to find out how he got there. But he's hanging from the clock hands of Big Ben, and he cries out, God, let me know you're there. Love me. Hate me. Just let me know you're there. And it's hilarious in context, but you have to go see it. I'm not going to ruin it for you. Uh, but uh, it's this incredible cry, and it gives voice to one of our deepest human desires. And that is to hear from God. To hear from God. We have this deep, almost inexplicable longing to connect with the transcendent. To connect with the divine. To know God is there. It's actually what's behind all of the UFO uh, sightings, you know, and all of the kind of conspiracy theories about Roswell, New Mexico, and Area 51. You didn't know this, but this is actually what it is. It's because we wanna know that we're not alone, that there is someone out there to communicate with, right? Some kind of higher life form, ultimately God, but we're desperate for some kind of context for our existence, to have meaning, To know that life on this planet, and more particularly, our own lives, are not just part of a random accident in the universe. We want to know that we're a part of a bigger context, a bigger story. God, let me know you're there. Love me, hate me, just let me know you're there. Well, that's what our new sermon series is about. It's about hearing God speak. Hearing God speak. God letting us know that he is there, and not just that but explicitly giving our lives meaning and purpose through what he says to us. So, we're gonna look at three main ways over the next three weeks uh, that we hear God speak. And it's not an exhaustive list, but these are the primary ways that God communicates to us. And they are through the Bible, through others, and through his Holy Spirit. And they are all interrelated and overlap, as we shall see. This week, we will be considering particularly how God speaks to us through his Bible, through the Word. Paul, in our Timothy reading today, gives a foundational understanding about the Bible as he writes to his student, Timothy. And he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, For correction and for training in righteousness. The man and the woman of God who read this will be complete, equipped for every good work uh, in the Lord. So we start with the Bible because it is our primary source. Uh, It is how we know what we know about God. And it's really what we know about redemptive history recorded for us. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a kind of Bible 101 class right here, okay? So uh, in case you've ever heard anybody doubt the accuracy of the Bible, which maybe you have, uh, it's important to know that there are there's no other historical book of antiquity uh, that is as accurate as the Bible when it comes to its reliability, okay? Um, we have more early manuscripts of the New Testament, which means from the first century. So they were, these are manuscripts and copies that were written within 100 years of when the events actually took place. We have more of those manuscripts than all other manuscripts of every other book from antiquity combined. Okay? So we have over 25,000 copies and manuscripts of the New Testament. That's incredible. You know, so when you think about other works of antiquity, think about Aristotle or Plato or Homer, any of those, right? Ones that we all had to learn when we were coming up through school. We have a fraction of copies of those. And yet, nobody questions the validity of Aristotle. You know, we're all like, oh, of course he said that. But when it comes to the Bible, people are like, I don't know, I don't know, but we have over 25,000 copies of the New Testament um, at our disposal. And The other thing that is super clear from all of our manuscripts, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls that really give us the Old Testament all the way through all these New Testament works, is the fact that what we have, what you have in your Bible, what you have on your Bible app, whatever it is, whatever translation you're reading, uh, is actually deadly accurate. It's very accurate to the original languages, the original thing, the original copies we have. Because the copiers of the texts we're very very careful all these different uh, manuscripts we've got there are tiny tiny variants th- across all of them very very small variants in the sense that maybe there's a letter missing here in a word or there's just an order of words that's different you know instead of saying Jesus Christ it says Christ Jesus you know it's stuff like that where any variant that they found in all these copies have they have no impact on the meaning of the message, the meaning of the letter, the meaning of the book. It's all so uh, solid and faithful when they study all these things. The text remains clear and consistent. So the Bible is an overwhelmingly reliable source of Judeo-Christian history. So just be confident when you read it, all right? You're actually reading something that uh, is faithful to what was originally written. In addition to that... And more importantly than that, that's all this kind of textual analysis I was giving you. It's it's a very beginner's seminary course for you. Uh, In addition to all that, and more important than that, is what Paul tells us today. What Paul says to Timothy. And that's that the Bible is not simply a great, reliable, historical compilation for us. It is actually the Word of God. It is breathed out by God. That's what he says to Timothy. He tells us that this is God speaking to us. This is his primary way of communicating to us, to speak to us, letting us know that he is there. Whenever God has done something in the lives of his people, they were moved to write it down so that all of us who came after them might know the story of God and how he's worked in our world. He has spoken through his people in his written word to us. Now, I come from a big family, which I've shared before here. I'm one of seven children, and one of the things that we do when we all get together is we tell our stories, right? It's what we do as families. We've all heard them many, many, many times, and uh, but we love to gather around the dinner table and we love to tell them all again, and we laugh at all the same stupid things and all the same places and all the stuff in the story, but we love to do it because there are stories. There are stories that really have defined us, that have formed who we are. We love to remember them together, and it's not just the silly ones, we love those, but we also remember the profound ones, the times when God has done something powerful in our family's history. And we tell our our individual ones, too. Now that we all have our own families, we come together and we tell new stories. And they become part of the bigger picture, the bigger narrative of our family history. And you guys do this, too. We all do this. Thanksgiving is coming, you know. And, you know, sometimes we dread the holidays. But at the very least, we're going to have some laughs, right, with our families and the people that we hang out with. We'll tell some good old stories about when we were kids, and it'll be fun. But this is, this is why we do this. This is what we see in the scriptures too. We see stories uh, that had profound impact on the identity of these people. And so they wrote them down so that people would remember them. And we do this with our own lives. It's, it's what's behind, uh, you know, Ancestry.com and 23 and me these types of things. It's because, as I said, we're desperate for context. We want to know that our existence means something. And we live in this increasingly transient and fractured world, right? Where we hardly know where we are half the time or where we're coming from. And so we want our stories to remind us of who we are. This is why the Bible was written down for us. And the more significant the story, obviously, the greater motivation to record it and to remember it faithfully. And this is how the Holy Spirit has moved over history through the scriptures. God moved on his people, letting them know we need to write this down, we need to capture this for those who've come after us. So if you want to hear God speak, we're starting with the scripture because that is the primary way we hear God speak to us. We actually have in your bulletins today a little assist for you. We have a bookmark for you to take home, and this actually is just an easy way to do a quiet time and to read something out of the Bible, okay? And there's a prayer, the Lord's Prayer on the back, and kind of meditations about it. There's questions about reading the passage. And if you want some guidance in terms of how to pick a passage to read, we have our website down there that will give you some guidance on uh, picking scriptures to study. So take this home and take advantage of using it. It's a great resource. Now, the greatest of all the stories that we have in Scripture uh, is the fact that God himself entered into our world. It is the crescendo. It is the the most important thing we have is that God came into our world in physical form to live and die for us. Unlike all of those UFO stories that I referenced earlier, you know, kind of if you ever watched Discovery or the History Channel, I love that that's on the History Channel now you know, the UFO conspiracy theories. But anyhow, uh, the UFO stories, they're all, you know, they happen for like a moment and the stories are completely unreliable and they're impossible to prove, right? Unlike those stories, we have this story that tells us that God himself entered into our world, not just for a moment, but he stayed around for a few decades and lived amongst people, and he was heard and seen by thousands of people. And he made sure that his friends and his followers paid attention to what he said so that we wouldn't have to wonder if God is out there, and we wouldn't have to wonder what he thinks about us. Our gospel passage today in Matthew 7 is an example of this. It comes at the end of one of Jesus' most famous teachings, his Sermon on the Mount, And in it, we hear him emphasize just what his words mean for us. Literally eternal life. Being welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Right? I'm glad the disciples heard that. They're like, oh, that's important. We should write that down. Right? Because he said, this is how you get into heaven. And they're like, oh. So they wrote it down, and here we are. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will enter the kingdom of heaven. He equates his teaching with the will of his Father. In verse 21. So it begs the question, what has Jesus been teaching? What has he been saying? What are his words? Well, I want to start with uh, what Jesus is not teaching, okay, in this passage. Because he gets into some, uh, he starts talking about those who won't enter. So we're going to start there. Uh, but the first thing he says is, is uh, in our section from verses 21 through 23, Jesus describes the judgment day. And we're going to stop right there first. Uh, This is not a popular thing. Judgment. You know, we're not talking about Terminator 2, which is a great movie. And the new Terminator is coming out, and they're continuing on from that movie, Terminator 2. So you have to watch Terminator 2 as well this week. Okay. (laughs) I'm done with that. But... Uh, judgment Day, it is not a popular idea for us in our culture anymore because how can there be judgment when everybody is just doing okay? Everybody's fine. You know, you've got your truth, I've got mine. You just do your thing, I'll do mine. This is our culture, right? This is our subjective reality. There's no more objective right and wrong except for you to follow your heart. You know, this is, that's kind of Disney's message. Uh, just follow your heart. And the result is uh, what Metallica saying in 1991, which is, nothing else matters. I mean, that's really what the result is. Nothing matters at all anymore. You know, because it's basically me saying, you just live your truth is basically saying, I don't care about you at all or what you're doing. I don't want your life to interfere with mine. We live in this subjective reality. And we've, we've blinded our eyes and plugged up our ears to any idea of judgment because we know that we can't survive it. So we don't like to hear about it. But that doesn't actually stop it from coming. Okay? It's, it's like the same thing nowadays where you're know, saying, I don't believe in climate change. Like it's a belief. It doesn't matter if you believe in it or not. It's happening. There you go. So Jesus, Jesus is very clear that there will be a judgment day. And he's clear that he will be the judge on that day in this passage. People are going to stand before him. And he says, though there will be a lot of people. He says, many, many people will come to him that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Clearly what these people have done is somehow not consistent with what Jesus taught, with what his words are, because they get rejected. What they did was not actually the will of the Father somehow. Otherwise, they would have been welcomed in. I mean, this is what Jesus just said. So it's either that he's a liar or that what they're hanging their hat on is wrong. But then they list these really good things, right? They list these things that we would sit there and say, well, isn't that good fruit? prophesying, casting out demons, you know, doing miracles? Isn't that the good fruit that Jesus just talked about earlier in this chapter before this passage? It seems so. But somehow it's not consistent with what Jesus taught in this sermon. Because he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Remember how he opens the Sermon on the Mount. He opens it with a list of blessings, people that are blessed, right? The Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. The Beatitudes describe true humility. They're a description of true humility And I wonder, do these people saying, Lord, Lord, to him in this moment, do they sound to you poor in spirit? Do they sound meek? Do they sound like they're mourning? I don't hear that. What they're actually doing is pointing to themselves. This is the product of the false teachers. It's what comes right before uh, our passage today. It's the context. Jesus warns us of false teachers and false prophets. And he warns us against them because the false prophets and false teachers produce this kind of fruit, which is people that say, look at what I've done. When they come before Jesus, they say, look what I did. You know, what I have done has earned my right to enter into your kingdom. Even though it sounds really good, prophesying, casting out demons and many miracles They're saying, Jesus, we deserve to enter because we did so many good things. They are self righteous in this moment. And this is not what Jesus taught. This is not what he's taught in the Sermon on the Mount. This whole sermon that Jesus has just given is about exposing the false foundation of our own righteousness, exposing the false foundation of our own ability to be good. This is the sand. That Jesus's parable that comes right after this uh, says, where he talks about uh, the sand and the parable about the two builders. The house built on the sand of your own goodness may look as solid as the house that is built on the rock. It may look like it. They may. You might even not be able to tell the difference between the two from the outside. You know, the house built on the sand might have all the right decor. You know, it might have all the right materials and have really solid, you know, solid building materials. But underneath it, the foundation is weak. It might look the same as the house built on the rock, but it is not built on the rock, it's built on sand. The sand of self-righteousness, of relying on your own goodness. And Jesus says that you won't often know that it is built on that until the storms hit. That's what he says. You know, everything will seem fine while the sunny weather is going on, like a day like today, a beautiful day. But when the storms hit, because life is not easy, there will be many challenges, many struggles, many surprises, many disappointments. When those storms hit, Jesus promises that it's going to expose your foundation. Cancer. Anxiety. Depression. Adultery. Divorce. Bankruptcy, legal battles, addiction, death. All of those storms will blow that house that is built on your own goodness right over. You won't be able to stand up against those things. Jesus' teaching in this sermon is, is intending to show us this before we find ourselves in shambles in the wake of those storms. He wants us to see this, that our tendency is to build our our houses on sand, the sand of our own goodness. And he wants us to see that when the storms come, we won't have any solid foundation. He's warning us. His words are always designed to do two things. He will bring you to the truth about yourself, and then he will bring you to the truth about him. This is what Jesus' word does to us. Our existence is not subjective. Okay, like we talked about earlier it's not subjective we are not just random accidents in a cold and impersonal universe though that is what often many people think in our culture that's not the case we are the creations of an almighty God this is the context for our existence there is truth and he is way bigger than us and what we've learned through the Bible and through our own lives we all have testimonies We've learned that we have rejected him. That's our default setting. And that has broken everything. And now our default setting is this living in the lie of self-reliance. You know, the lie of independence. That I can do it on my own. I'll pull myself up by my own bootstraps. We believe in ourselves and our ability to fix everything if we even admit that things are broken in the first place, which we don't like to do, right? We say, oh, you're fine, you're fine. I'm fine, we're all fine. Just watch the news. All of our solutions and our attempts to be our own saviors only ever result in more problems, right? We can't undo what we have done. And sadly, the very desire to try to fix it, fix the problem that we've created, is part of the problem. It is the thing that these people are saying to Jesus at the end. We're saying, we can fix it, we can do it, we can save ourselves. Lord, Lord, we prophesied, we cast out demons, we did many miracles. And we continue to place our faith in ourselves and build our houses on that sand. This is the truth about us. This is Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he has exposed. Everything he has said has been to tear down our false belief... In ourselves, right? Just remember some of the high points, okay, of the sermon. Have you ever called anyone a fool? That's murder. Have you ever lusted after anybody? That's adultery. Have you ever sworn an oath? Jesus says that's lying and evil. Have you ever dreamed of getting revenge on anyone? That's unforgiveness and probably murder again. So there you go. Uh, Have you ever done things just to be seen as good by other people? That's hypocrisy. All of these things in this sermon are trying to cut straight to the heart. And this is what Jesus means when he says, hearing his words and doing them. Those who hear his words and do them will be like the one who builds his house on the rock. He is saying, measure your hearts against what I have just taught you. Measure your hearts against the law that I am teaching you. Do that and you will find your faith in yourself will finally come to its end. The false house of self-righteousness will be torn down before the storms come. And that's good news. It doesn't feel good at first. We don't want that. We think but he's actually getting us to find the real foundation. He's pointing us away from the sand and pointing to the rock, to himself. When that is torn down, we will find ourselves described, finally, by the Beatitudes. We'll go back to the beginning, and we'll hear, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the mourning. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that is us when we measure our hearts against Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. We become described by the Beatitudes because we are truly humbled and we will be blessed because we're ready to be saved. And that's the second thing that Jesus' words always do. They show us the truth about him. He began this sermon. Declaring, right after the Beatitudes, he declares that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He came to be our righteousness for us. To be good in our place. He is the Savior. He is the perfect Son of God. This is the greatest testimony of Scripture to us. This is why this is written down. He came to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He suffered death in our place, and he rose again on the third day so that death would be conquered and so that your sins would be forgiven. That's the power of God. Jesus Christ forgives your sins. Hear God speak that to you today. Hear God speaking to you through this. He says, I made you, I love you, I have come for you, and I have forgiven you through my son. This is the testimony of the Bible. This is the testimony of our family. Remember we talked about family last week and week before? This is the testimony of our family, our spiritual family, that our Lord has come after us to save us. These are our stories. This is his sure foundation that will make you stand firm through any storm. On that judgment day, when it comes because of the power of his awesome word, you will come before him and you will not point to anything you have done. Instead, you will bow before your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and you will worship him for all that he has done for you. You'll give him the glory and he will welcome you in to his father's kingdom. And he'll say, come in. Come in and enjoy me forever. I came for you. Depend on me. This is the good news for us today. This is how God speaks to us through his word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the fact that you came for us. Lord, we thank you for your teaching that exposes our false foundations so that we might find the true foundation in you. You show us the truth about ourselves and the truth about yourself. And Lord, we pray that you would keep that firmly fixed in our hearts and our minds today and as we go out from here. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would use us to share that good news with others. That we would proclaim the freedom in you. Freedom from having to save ourselves freedom from our sin. Lord, we give you praise. We ask this all in your name. Amen.